You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're concluding our study of the book of Ruth. We're calling A Return to Joy. With this week's message, here's senior pastor Lance Bourgeois. Well, I want to take the opportunity to kind of close the gap. We're going to close the gap on the Ruth story this morning. But I've shared some of our story with you over the last several weeks, and I thought I would close the gap on that for you as well. A couple of weeks ago when we started, I started telling you some of our family story about 2014 when we moved off to Louisiana. We moved in June, and that conversation that I had with my son was in August. Things had been tough. It didn't seem like things were going very smoothly for us at all. And it was around August when my son leans over to me. I remember right where we were. I was driving. He was in the front passenger seat. Uh, We're driving down the highway, and I'm in the left turn lane to go uh, left to go home. And Taylor leans over and goes, yeah, Dad, I'm not so sure we heard God right on this one. And I've got that nervous moment, right? And I did what all good parents do in that moment. I need a delay tactic because I'm not ready to respond to that question. So I said, well, I feel like he did call us here, but tell me what you mean because I'm just trying to buy time. I got to come up with that answer, right? And so he responds and explains, I knew exactly what he needed, so I didn't need to listen because I knew what he was asking. And I leaned over and I said, well, I've, I've really, I, I don't question if God called us here. I don't know how long he's called us here for, but I know that he called us here. And so I started talking with him about what I thought would be an encouragement to me. And so I started saying, well, let's talk about this. So there's a church in Louisiana that, that doesn't have uh, a pastor right now, and they're looking for one. And I said, and then there's this church in Wichita Falls, Texas. And I said, there's a whole team of pastors there. And so I started naming off our pastoral staff one after another. I'm like, well, what do you think about this, this person? Is, is he a good pastor? Do you feel like he's effective? Do you feel like God's calling's on his life? And he was like, yeah. And so we went through each member of our pastoral staff. And I said, well, let me ask you this. If there's one church in Wichita Falls, Texas, that had 10 pastors that you feel like are gifted called pastors, and then there's a church in Louisiana that does not have any gifted called pastors, does it seem that maybe God would pull one of the 10 and move them to, the, to this other one? He goes, well, that makes sense. I said, and if you were going to pull one of the 10 out of Wichita Falls, Texas, does it seem like you'd pull the one named Bourgeois? <laughs> Well, yeah, that makes sense. And so now, right, so now at least we've got Lance going, right? And so then we started talking, and I said, you know what else is interesting? As I said, if we come and we get discouraged, who wins? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, if we heard God wrong, but we took a bold step of faith, believing that he called us to do this, and we come here, Does God honor the fact that we took a bold step of faith, believing this is what he called us to? Or does God act as though there's just like one magic door of obedience, and he's waiting for me to choose from all the doors so that he can laugh at me when I make the wrong door? Does that seem like our God? No. I said, so we believe God called us here. We took a bold step of faith to come here. Seems like God would honor that. He goes, well, I'm with you. I said, and if we get discouraged, who wins? He goes, what do you mean? I'm like, if we get discouraged, is our enemy happy about that? 
Or is our God happy about that? He goes, well, the enemy. I said, so I feel like this is what God has for us. And he goes, well, why didn't you just say all that from the beginning? I'm like, I didn't know you were going to ask me about it. You know, it's funny because that was, we moved in June. That was August. That conversation that I told you about last week with my friend Jim, that would have been in the April timeframe. So we were still eight months away from that happening. And so we found ourselves in a season of waiting. And I don't like to wait. I'm just being real. I don't love to wait. When there's a season that's changing, I'm ready to get on to the new season. And so I struggle with that. But this theme of waiting, it's in Ruth. I mean, we've been talking about it. But it is so true to Scripture. It is so grounded in Scripture. And part of what Scripture wants to do is confront me in the way that I think about waiting. Well, I mean, like this. So you, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Not in seasons waiting, continually waiting. Is my call, your call as a follower of the Lord, is that we are continually waiting for God to show up. This isn't seasonal. This isn't in episodes. This is to become our way of life as believers. And then I'm met with the, well, I, I really don't enjoy that. And so then I go to Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. First of all, Psalmist, you tell us twice in one verse tell us to wait for the Lord. But I also find that waiting feels like weakness to me. And the psalmist says, no, I want you to be strong in your waiting game. I, I, I don't even know what that means, right? Be strong in my waiting. So there's something there, because in my mind, I think of it as weakness, like I got to do something, I got to grab the reins, there's something here for me. And God says, no, I want you to be strong, but I want you to be strong as you wait, because everything in life is going to... Well, appeal to our weakness, like we're going to pull away. He said, no, no, no. Be strong as you wait. I mean, really wait hard on the Lord and take courage while you do. Take courage. Isaiah 30, for the Lord is a God of justice and blessed are those who wait for him. It's not, it's not only that waiting can be strong, but there's blessings for us when we wait. Okay. So God's doing something. It's not only that I'm not doing anything in my waiting, I'm called to be strong in it, but God's blessing me while I do. Okay, that takes a new thought. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord's at hand. Be patient and really anchor your heart. Because in waiting, man, we can be like a ship on the ocean, can't we? Just drifting back and forth. Well, what if? I don't know. I mean, what if he doesn't? What if he does do that? What if he doesn't do this? What if he doesn't show up? No, we're going to be patient, but anchor your heart. Be strong. There's a blessing in it. Anchor your heart to it. And now, oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you because I, I've got nothing. Even if I wanted to get out of my situation, I lack the power, the resources, the omniscience. How many times have you thought, I wish I'd done that differently? Our hope's in him, that he's going to step into this and he's going to lead and he's going to provide in this. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation because that's who I'm waiting on. Let's keep our mind set. Who are we waiting on? The God of our salvation. The one who loves you, redeemed you, has done everything to have a relationship with you. Oh yeah, that's who I'm waiting on. I'm not waiting on anything else. I'm waiting on him, the one who is the God of my salvation. Because when we come back, I waited patiently for the Lord. And how did he respond? He inclined to me and heard my cry. 
I waited for him. I called out to him. He leaned down to hear, and all of a sudden, here's, our, here's what he did for us, right? He drew me up from the pit of destruction. We were incapable of getting out of that ourselves. He drew me up out of that miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and will put their trust in the Lord. He's the one who does those things. Who do we wait on? The one who is strong, the one who loves us, the one who is patient, the one who hears us, the one who leans down when we cry out to him, the one who is capable of pulling us out of the pit, who is capable of setting our feet on the rock, who is capable of putting a new song in our mouth. That's who we wait on, the God of our salvation. So when we step into this passage further today, let's be mindful of who we are waiting on. Ruth chapter 4. Open up your copy of Scripture, if you would, digital or hard copy, whatever you wanna, uh, you're inclined to do. Waiting is hard. We follow this story of Ruth. We've come through this time. It's been a heart-aching story, if you have followed us. There was despair. There was death. There was crisis. There was uh, a famine. There was a moment where it seemed like maybe things were going to turn the corner and maybe get better. And then we got to a part where it seemed like God was at work. You know, maybe, maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe it was luck. Or maybe it was the God of our salvation intervening directly on behalf of his people. And we carry into this story. If you were here with us last week, we ended Ruth 3 with this idea that Ruth and Naomi, Naomi had mentored Ruth. This is what our faith believes. There's a, this thing called a kinsman redeemer, that when there's a breach in the family line, either in lineage that there's no children for the next generation or in the family's estate, in their possessions, is that God has a plan when there's a breach in that to step in and intervene, and he uses his people to do it. And Boaz has the opportunity when Ruth presents herself, and Boaz says, look, this is going to be resolved tomorrow. I will deal with this tomorrow. We will have an answer tomorrow. So you can rest tonight because we're going to deal with this. He said, but there's somebody closer to me than me that has the first right of privilege to do this. And so we're going to deal with that tomorrow. And if he says no, then I'm doing it. And that's where we pick up our story. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So this isn't a courthouse setting, but this is where public business would have been done in the day. So he knows, he puts himself in an advisable location. Kind of like the idea that when Ruth went looking for a field to glean in, we had that phrase, chance, she chanced upon chance, to happen into Boaz's field. And we talked about the fact we don't have a theology of coincidence, we have a theology of sovereignty. And so God led her to that field, and God leads Boaz to the gate, and he leads this, this other kin, kinsman to come by. So he wakes up in the morning and says, all right, I'm going to go put myself at the gate. That's where legal transactions happen. So he goes and sits down by there, and lo and behold, here comes the kinsman. He comes walking by, and he doesn't approach him as, hey, he doesn't call him by name. He doesn't give him that honor. He's just like, hey, friend, grab a seat. Let's have a talk. And so he sits down, and then he's like, because he knows what's coming. He knows we're about to have a legal deal. 
And so he looks around to the 10 elders like, hey, hey, you, 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 10 of you, come grab a seat. And so they all come and sit down. This is how business is going to be done. Verse 3, then he said, Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Hey, that's our family line. Elimelech's died. He's passed this property down to Naomi, his wife. She's a widow. And so you have rights to it. I have rights to it, but you have first rights to it. Selling that parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, let's just stop a second. Now, he positions it. There's two things to redeem there. There is Ruth, the family line, and there's the estate, the property. And he goes to him and strategically says, hey, there's some land that needs to be redeemed. But he called over all the elders. This is going to be done today. And so you can imagine he's the one that's come up with this plan. I mean, God's plan for the kinsman redeemer. He's leaning into what God said, this is how I provide for my people. I use my people to provide for my people. But he says, hey, I want you to hear this. There's an opportunity. Well, how does this kinsman uh, respond? Well, you see right there. And he said, I will redeem it. He looks around and says, you know what? This is pretty good. I'm going to add to my own estate. This land, this parcel of land is going to stay in our family, and that's a win for our family. Then Boaz said, see, he broke it apart into two pieces. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Now, it's funny Boaz, within his strategy, I, I don't know why he broke them apart. Maybe because it's easier to think about redeeming property than redeeming a person, because that certainly comes with more responsibilities. I think at one level, what Boaz is doing is he is flushing out this kinsman. Is this kinsman benevolent to want to be used of God to redeem another person, or is this person selfish and just trying to grow his own portfolio? I, I know one way to find out. Let's ask him the question. And so he turns around, and after that guy says, I'm all in for the land, he goes, oh, by the way, there's also Ruth the Moabite. Now, I got to tell you, I think Ruth is probably tired of being called Ruth the Moabite, but there's more to that to come in the story. So he goes ahead and says it, and then look at verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Land, I'm all in. Ruth, not so much. And I got to tell you, we never hear about this person again. This is the anonymous kinsman who had an opportunity to be used of God powerfully in the life of another to redeem another's crisis situation. He declines it, and we never even know his name. A missed opportunity in time to represent the goodness of God in the life of another. We keep talking, we keep seeing this phrase over and over and here, the kindness of God. And we find ourselves here, here's somebody that did not demonstrate the kindness of God. And he goes away in the story and we never hear from him again. We have no idea what his name is. But he turns around and says, hey, it's all you. It's all you, I'm out. 
And he gives us some excuse like, I don't know. I mean, my inheritance, it could mess that up. What's really going on? We, we don't really know. It could be. Maybe he thought he couldn't care for the additional land. Maybe he didn't want a wife. Maybe he didn't want any more children. I, I don't know. But he missed an opportunity to be used of God in this moment. And all of a sudden, we don't even know his name. And he goes away in the story, and we never hear from him again. But it does open a story here and takes us to the next level. With, look with me, if you would, at verse 7. We get a little narration here for us for what's about to happen. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Like I said, there weren't courthouses. This isn't a contract. There's not a signature to sign this. You don't need a notary on this deal. It was a visual. It was a memorable gesture. You're sitting in the town gate, and you say, I will buy this land from you, and you take off your shoe and give it to the other, which was a sign that you have permission to walk the land. The land is now yours. And if anybody had ever said, hey, 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 kind of funny, because I don't know that you carry it in your wallet, you know, your back pocket, like, hey, why are you walking on my land? You're like, ah, I've got the sandal, Right? I mean, what a strange deal. That's what they would do, though. And so everybody in the city gate were like, he gave him his sandal. He did. I saw him. I gave him the sandal that day. He really got the land. It's all his. He has full rights pertaining to the land. So we get that kind of as a narration. Verse 8, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. That's why we needed to have that note to understand that. Then Boaz said to the elder, I mean, I want you to see, Boaz told us, he's going to deal with this immediately the next day. Do we doubt him? No, he's a man of character. Over and over, we've seen him do that. He got up early the next morning, goes down to the city gate, sees the, the kin, dresses it. Guy says, no, now we've got a sandal deal going on, and here we go. Verse 9, then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses that this day that I had bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You were witnesses this day. Can you imagine this scene going on? You know, it started off with Boaz sitting there, and then all of a sudden the kin passes by. So now we got two. And then he's like, calls out to the elders of the city. Now we got 10 more. So now we got 12. And you know what it's like. You see groups of people talking and engaging. This would have been a lively conversation. We got sandals being passed back and forth. And you have people walking by. And now it's like, hey, what's happening? What's going on here? And now you have all of these people listening. And man, Boaz doesn't miss a beat. He stands up and is like, let it be known. I am dealing with this. That land, that Ruth, we still have the word Moabite there, Ruth the Moabite, this is a closed deal. Everybody is around. Can you imagine, we talked about the fact that this family had kind of been like local royalty kind of thing. And now all of a sudden, you're looking at Naomi and Ruth that had left in, in a time of famine. They come back, just the two of them. And now they find themselves in this position where it's like, ah, they're going to be okay. It's going to happen. Everything's going to be all right. Look at Boaz, this man of character. Look at what he did. He just stepped up. I kind of wonder if the unnamed anonymous kinsman has just kind of slinked off, right? 
because they're all praising Boaz for his integrity and his character in the moment. Imagine what the anonymous kinsman is thinking if he's still sitting there, right? Look at how the people respond. Verse 11, then all the people who are at the gate, it's the town gate, tons of people there. Look at their response. We are witnesses. We see it. We will testify against it. This is a done deal. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. So let's stop for a second. When we hear about Yahweh and God of our fathers, and we talk about it in the terms of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're always framing that in the terms of the patriarchs. The people at the gate go the other way. They're talking to Ruth. Ruth who? The Moabite. And they go to the matriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, mothers of a nation. These people in this crowd turn around and look at the Moabite and say to her, may you be like Rachel and Leah who built up the house of Israel. May you, Ruth the Moabite, be used of God in such significant ways that you are like Rachel and Leah and you build up the house of Israel. What an incredible moment of casting vision for what Ruth is going to be like. She's no longer Ruth the Moabite. Things are changing. She's had this label. She's been saddled with this label. I think she saw herself in that label. For goodness sakes, when Naomi came back and she said, I left full, but I came back empty. What what about Ruth? Ruth's standing there, but she's, you know, she's just Ruth the Moabite, right? She doesn't even count. And now all of a sudden, all the people in the gate are looking at her and saying, may you be like our matriarchs. What an incredible scene. I tell you, there's a message there for us as we think about our identities, either the ones that we place ourselves in or the ones that people saddle us with. This God's always doing a redeeming work, and this is coming to fruition for this dear Ruth. May you be like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. And then there's this moment, may you act worthily for Boaz, worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You keep being the man God calls you to be, Boaz. You're doing it. You are the man. You are this worthy man of valor. Ruth, we want you to become a matriarch figure in the people of Israel. Boaz, keep being the man God calls you to be. You have been that time, and again, don't abandon it. We want you to be known as a man of valor for the Lord. Why? Because he stepped up. And when an opportunity present himself, uh, was presented to him to step up and be the man that God wants to use him to be, to redeem a family line, to redeem a family estate, he didn't hesitate enthusiastically. It was, use me, God, for your purposes. What a calling that all of us would say, God, use me when there's an opportunity. And I don't know about this other anonymous kinsman, but other than this, no, 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 no. I can't be bothered to, for God's purposes. 
give me the chance to get more land and build my own portfolio, I'm in. Expect me to be inconvenienced or use some of my resources for God's good purposes, I'm out. That's not Boaz. That's the other anonymous guy. We don't even know his name. But Boaz is all in. And the people are looking at it and they're saying, hey, we want to be known for this. And all of a sudden, we've got this story that's taking over. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. I want to make sure everybody catches this. What phrase is no longer there? The Moabite. That label is gone. She's been redeemed. She is fully a member of the family. That label that she put on herself, that other people put on herself, is gone over and over and over. That's been what she's been saddled with this entire story. And it's gone. All of a sudden, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. What a story of what God's been doing. And Boaz went into her and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. See, the land's already been redeemed. Kinsman, redeemer, two things. You restore the family line, the lineage, and you you restore the estate of the family. The estate of the family was already fixed. That was the sandal thing. And now that we would have a family line to move forward and they bore a son, the family has been redeemed not by obligation like the anonymous guy, but by choice. See, Boaz wasn't even having to do this. He chose to do it. It's me. Give me the right. By choice, Boaz steps in, and the family line will continue, and it's going to be phenomenal. The plans, the kinsman redeemer plan worked. Everything's resolved. We went through a time in in chapter one of devastation and despair. That's why we call this area a journey to joy from bitterness to contentment because we've been watching what has gone on in this story. And we get to this part and what we see is we've got this incredible moment. Then the woman, verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. This is the same Naomi that said, look at what the Lord did to me. Look at what the Almighty, he could have acted on my behalf, but he didn't, and she's mad. And now all the women are looking around like, look at what he's done for you. Look at what the Almighty did for you. Don't miss this, Naomi. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. She said, I'm empty. These women say, oh, no, 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 no. This whole thing hinged on Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you. That's where this began, her personal commitment to you. She's more to you than seven sons, and she's given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became a nurse. That's why we call this the journey of Naomi. Chapter 1, despair. Chapter four, grandson laying on her lap. Joy is back. What a moment. I gotta tell you, as we look through this and we look through this story and all that has gone on in this story, it's easy to look up and say, well, what happened here? Well, one is, this is a promise that followers of Christ could claim forever and we pray that it's true, right? 
is that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we want this to be true. We're desperate for this to be true, right? What's well, played out here. Now, I will tell you, this isn't a promise for the whole world. No, see, there, there's a notation there. Who is this true for? For those of us who love God and are walking according to his purposes. See, we want life to fall apart when you don't know the Lord so that we say, hey, I need to know the Lord. God uses circumstances to draw us to the Lord. For those of us who know the Lord, the question is this, right? Because life falls apart anyway. Lord doesn't make life fall apart. Life falls apart. The promise to believers is God says, whatever your life falls apart, I'm going to make it good. Praise the Lord. And for Naomi, she is watching it come to fruition. It's all happening. You know, we come through all of this story and we're looking around and we're like, okay, well, okay, so this is a good day. Oh, this is a bad day. And we follow that. And the hope and the prayer is that no matter what we face in this world, that God's going to make it good. Because what happened to them at one point was one day, Elimelech and Naomi was like, oh, I love you. Oh, I love you. Let's spend the rest of our life together, and it's going to be great, right? Two people standing before God, family, friends at the altar. If you're married, you know what that feels like. And they're looking in each other's eyes, and man, we're going to never struggle, and love will keep us alive, and we got all that going on, right? And then that two became four. They became parents. God enlarged their family. And all of a sudden, like, oh, this is perfect. We're the perfect family. Matter of fact, we read in chapter one is that the four of them went. It's the only place where sons is used for adult married men. So maybe she had a hard time letting them go. But those two became four. And then those four, while they were living in Moab, became six. And then heartache struck. And those six became three. And in that, Naomi in her bitterness says, you two daughters-in-law, y'all just go home. Go back to your parents. I'm done for. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm too bitter. I'm too disillusioned. Life hurts too bad. Just go home. And maybe God will smile on you and you can have another husband. Orpah says, okay, I'll go home. Ruth says, not on your life. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your God's going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people. And may God judge me if I ever leave your side. She's all in. And all of a sudden, what we see is all of a sudden, that two that became four, that became six, that became three, that became two, we get, get Boaz. Now we're back to three. And Boaz was from the line of Elimelech. And so this line gets passed down. So look with me, if you would, at your passage very quickly when we see what happened. Naomi, verse 16, Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Because look at what happened. Boaz has, they, Ruth have Obed. That gives birth to Jesse. That gets to David. And by the way, anybody who know who's in the line of David? Unbelievable. Because of what God has done through the heartaches. At one point, God said, I'm going to work this together for your good. And Ruth had to think, I don't know. What she knew that she needed was Messiah. And God said, I'm working my plan here. Life hurts. Life falls apart. That's what life does. But I've got a great plan here, and I'm going to use you. And this Moabite's going to end up in the genealogy of Christ. 
See, what a scene in the way this is playing out. And then we get this, and this would be worth studying at some point. You can obviously read all of these lines. Verse 18, now the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz to Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David. You see, we go through all of this and we end up with the fact that God was bringing about the line of our Savior. Some of you will know the name Jer, uh, Joni, um, Johnny Erickson Tata. When Johnny was 17 years old, uh, she was in a diving accident at the Chesapeake Bay, and it left her. The water was shallower than she anticipated, and so she ended up as a quadriplegic. Um, she's a Christian writer, author, um, artist as well. Uh, but God used her in, in mighty ways across the course of her life. Uh, and a couple of years ago was the 50th anniversary of her diving accident. And so she was interviewed about what happened. And she writes this, my Bible study friend, Steve Estes, shared 10 little words that set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Steve explained it this way, Johnny, God allows all sorts of things that he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, the injustice, and the treason that led to the crucifixion, yet he permitted it so the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way that God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph said to his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what's now being done in the saving of many lives." If you're here this morning, see, that worst murder was the fact that God came to this earth in the flesh. He never sinned, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. He never committed a crime. He never sinned, but the price of sin was death, and somebody had to die for sin. And since he had no sin of his own, he could die for the sins of, of us. He walked out of that grave on day three, having conquered death, offering you and me eternal life. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, the gift of the opportunity of that kinsman redeemer, like we've been talking with Boaz, is the gift of our Savior saying, let me redeem the family line, bring you back in as a son or a daughter so that I can put the family estate, the possessions back in order, promises made to my sons and daughters, like I will work all things together for your good. You see, God doesn't take away all of the hard things of this life. He just promises to redeem them and make them worthwhile to bring about something good in that. So let this sit there for a second. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He didn't make it happen. He doesn't cause it. It's life in a broken world. But know this, his hands are never tied. He will use whatever this world throws at us to turn it around to accomplish what he loves. He's been on the business of doing that since the beginning of humanity. It's who he is, and it's what he does. So when we come back around, let's put some of this in context. We've been talking about what it looks like when our dreams get shattered, when life hits us, because initially we were called to go after this God, and that was our goal, and we settled in for this manageable contentment with something smaller, and God crushes it. He allows that to happen to permit, excuse me, he permits it to happen so that he can accomplish what he loves. And all of a sudden, when we come across words like, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
You want the old thing. You just want balance back. God says, I'm after something new here. I want growth. I want development. I don't want to go back where we've been. We've already been there. Let's go somewhere new. So I'm going to make a way in the wilderness. I'm going to make rivers in the deserts. You know, I, I've shared with you all several times about our story in Louisiana. You know, there were several things that were going on. Jim was a gift to me. I, apart from that, that desert, Jim was a river for us there. Being with family, that was a river for us while we were there. I got to teach more. Somebody in our beloved church here made the comment to me when I got back, laughingly. I mean, they were good-natured about it. When they're like, you got better at preaching while you were gone. You're like, thanks. I look up and say, you realize I preached in five years while I was gone, I preached 250 sermons. If I couldn't get better after that, I'm in the wrong field, Right? And what you recognize is this, Ellen and I grew, it's a time of great help. My kids grew in their faith. I saw a son graduate from high school while we were there. We had precious time with family. We enjoyed being back. See, there's always rivers and wildernesses. That's who he is. That's what he does because he's always at work. And I can be so bent on saying, take me back. I like where I was. And I think God would say, hey, hey, but I'm doing something new. I'm like, yeah, but I liked where I was. He said, but you don't know the new yet. Trust me in the new. I was the one who gave you the old and you just want to go back. We've already learned those lessons. So let's get on with the new lessons because I got more to show you. And all of a sudden it feels like, okay, I want you again. I don't want to go back. I want you, God. And all of a sudden, we find the truthfulness of what Lewis wrote when he said, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Let me stop for a second. Lewis makes it clear, the only legitimate first thing is the pursuit of God in knowing him. Second things are a whole list of everything else. Some are good, some are bad. I wanna be rich, that would be a second thing. But you know what would be a good second thing? I wanna be a godly husband. I wanna be a godly dad. I wanna be a godly friend, a son, brother. Put in whatever. But if I put those things first, then I lose everything. Instead of allowing myself to have God as a legitimate first thing and then bring those things out in me, that's what he says. Put first things first. When we get the second things thrown in, I will become the husband, father, son, brother, pastor, whatever, as I keep first things first. Put second things first, and I lose them all. That's the way it works, which is kind of back to our initial story. Let's keep first things first. And whatever comes our way, let's take them and move forward on that. Because what I know is this, and I said this from the beginning, I'm sure that the story of Ruth has had some painful moments for some of us in our, our room. Who? People who are still living chapter one. I haven't come out of my chapter one yet. I'm still feeling the despair and the death and the famine, and I'm feeling all of that pain. And Lance, what I find is, as we study Ruth, I found hope awaken in me. Good, because that's who our God is, and that's what he does. Now, that hope may not come through in the way you hope or think it would, but harvest comes. Harvest always comes, because he's the God who said, I will provide for you. And so we live in that anticipation. If we're still in chapter one, we live in the anticipation of harvest coming. Some of us have moved to chapter two. If we're in chapter two, we're starting to hear the melody. We're starting to get our feet. God starts to pull us out of that pit and we learn to wait on him. And we happen to chance upon chance. See, we don't have a theology of coincidence. We have a theology of sovereignty. And we find ourselves happening in two fields where God provides for us. 
We don't even know what's happening. We just see that God's providing for us. We're like, well, that was lucky. No, that was God. And then maybe we find in chapter 3 that we find ourselves in that position where we lean into, God said he was going to do this, so we're going to trust that he's going to do it. And I'm actually going to rest as I wait for him to show up because I know he shows up because that's who he is and that's what he always does. And maybe we got some people in here that are in Ruth chapter 4. And they look around and they've got this quiet, contented moment where they're sitting there with the obit on their lap and they want God again and first things are first and second things matter, but first things matter more. And we lean into that and we see the goodness of God of who he is and what he's done. I don't know where you are. Ruth 1, 2, 3, or 4. We've all been in all of those chapters. We know the pain. See, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.